It's so great to see you guys this morning. I want to welcome those of you who are watching us online as well. We've been in this series. This is the fifth week. We've been in the regifting series where we talked about you have to get Jesus to give Jesus. And each week we've gone over our series thesis. We've uh, said this is our anthem. And I'm curious for those of you who've been around for all of it or part of it, are you ready for a little quiz this morning? Okay, all right, let's see if we can fill in the blanks. We are the wrapping paper that people have to get to get. That's right, you got it, 100%. We're the wrapping paper that people have to get through to get to Jesus. I'm so proud. All right, now yesterday, I think you were a great example of this. How many of you were a part of Rich Fest yesterday? How many of you guys volunteered? Guys, I'm so grateful to you. I'm so proud of you. That was awesome. I'm convinced we had, I know that we had more than 6,000. It might have been up, probably was higher than that. I'm afraid to say the number that I think it is so we get the official count. But it was awesome yesterday. And those of you who volunteered, who were serving in the kitchen and scooping ice cream and, and, and grilling burgers and, you know, doing trunkers, all of that stuff, you should be proud. You should give yourself a round of applause. I'm just so grateful grateful to you, so proud of you. Now, there was, there's a group of, there, there's a group of volunteers. I think they need a, a special nod, a special attaboy this morning. And so as we, I mean, for hours, there was bumper to bumper traffic that went out to the circle of people trying to get in here. One family told us that they waited for an hour just to be able to get into our parking lot. And every one of our spaces uh, uh, flipped over at least twice. I mean, we even had people parking on the, on the cornfield. And so our uh, serve team and parking team, they did their job with excellence yesterday. That was a hard job. And I'm so grateful for that team. So if you're on that team, from my heart, listen, thank you. That was a big deal. Yeah. So uh, it was a little over two and a half years ago uh, that, uh, that we came here, my wife and I came here, and one of the things that we were excited about moving to Rochester and joining this church is because this is a generous church, and this is, this is a loving church. And so I'm going to ask a question today, and it's not like based on anything ugly. It's just the kind of natural question that comes up if we're going to take seriously the text that we're reading today, and it's this, what is the greatest threat to people experiencing you as loving? Let me ask the question a different way. What is the thing that could contribute to you and me being experienced as though we are wrapped up with barbed wire? What is your answer? If you're a note taker, I'd love for you, just write your answer down right now. If you feel especially brave, maybe turn to the person next to you and and tell them, what is your answer? What is the thing that would cause us, cause you to be experienced as though you're wrapped up with barbed wire? We're going to talk about that today, but it's going to feel like I'm, it's like I'm never going to come back to it, but I promise we are going to come back to it. But before I do, we're going to do what we've done each week in this series as we take a look at a scene from Jesus's life. And I don't know if I have a favorite scene from Jesus's life, but this one ranks up there. Uh, this, is, this is a scene from Jesus's life that's nothing less than shocking. There are things about it that are absolutely disruptive. It might even be offensive. And so as just a disclaimer, let me ask you, do you give Jesus permission to offend you today? The scene that I'm talking about, you can read about in John chapter four. It's a long chapter. I don't have time to read the whole thing. I don't have time to to preach the the whole thing uh, today. But if you go and read it, and I'm begging you, I would love for you to carve out some time today, carve out some time this week, go and read John chapter four. This is what you're gonna find. Jesus was in this area down here called Judea, and he needed to get up here to Galilee. What's the shortest distance between two points? It's a straight line. But in Jesus' day, 
in his culture, the things that were going on, that there was so much cultural animosity and racial tension and and religious discrimination between Jewish people and people who lived in Samaria. Any self-respecting Jewish man, especially a man who was a leader, would not sully himself, would not defile himself by even walking into Samaria. If you were down here and you had to get up here, this is what you would do. You would cross the river, go around Samaria, cross the river again, and come back to where you wanted to go. What do you think Jesus did? He went straight through. And if you read John chapter four, it said Jesus had to go through Samaria. And when you read it, it just kind of, it naturally seems to imply that it was time constraints. He, he, was, he was just under the gun, so he had to cut through this place. But if we take the account of John four seriously, I think you're gonna see there's no way that that is the explanation. Now, Jesus is traveling through and he stops at this place right here called Sakar, and there's a public well there and he just kind of sits down. It's noon, it's the middle of the day, he's hot, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's hungry. So he sits down there and he tells his disciples, listen, guys, go into town, find a market and buy us some stuff for food. And if, when you read John chapter four this week, I'm curious if you're gonna see the same thing, get the same impression I do. It seems like Jesus is intentionally trying to set something up. I read a number of of biblical scholars and they say it just seems like Jesus is intentionally, purposely trying to set something up. He is fully human, but he's also fully God. He knows all the things that are happening, what people are gonna do, and it seems as though Jesus is arranging the chessboard in such a way to ensure that he has an encounter with a particular person. And even though we haven't even looked at scripture yet, I want us to make this observation about Jesus. Jesus was intentional. So he's sitting there alone next to this public well, and sure enough, a woman uh, comes along, uh, and we don't know her name. Uh, we just call her the woman at the well, which I, I think it's in some ways beneficial we don't know her name because she can be a stand-in for each and every one of us. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. They have an uh, unexpected conversation. It's, it's deep, it's meaningful, it's personal. And she is so captivated by Jesus and, and has such explosive joy, she leaves, she goes back to her town, tells all the people she can find about this guy. So they come to check him out. They are so captivated by Jesus, they beg him to stay for, to, just to stay in their town. And so Jesus extends his trip by two days and just hangs out in their town. And so if Jesus had the flexibility to extend his trip by two days, there's no way it was time constraints that caused him to cut through Samaria. If he had to go through Samaria, it was because he had to talk to this woman. He went out of his way, and this is what you gotta see today. He went out of his way to make his way to one particular person. Jesus went out of his way to make his way to you. Jesus went out of his way to make sure that you were seen, that you were known, and that you were engaged, and today we get to see that through his interaction with this woman at the well. In John chapter four, Jesus is sitting there, he's he's alone. This is what we read. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And his disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John adds this clarifying information. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. 
We got to make sure we understand what this means because there's some ways we could read this and we're like, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. I mean, obviously they speak the same language, so they're able to engage with each other. His disciples are in town, in a Samaritan town, engaging in commerce, buying food. They obviously are all using the same kind of currency. They're, they're, they, they would engage in trade with each other. They did engage and associate with each other. So what does this mean? This word associate, it actually means something different, something much uglier and something much more awkward because of just the electric, pervasive, deep, nasty racism that divided these two groups of people. A self-respecting Jewish person would not use or associate or share common utensils with a Samaritan person. Wouldn't share the same cup wouldn't share the same water jug. This is the kind of image that should come to our mind when we realize what's going on here. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus is the white guy and she's a black woman. Jesus was not white and she probably was not black. But the same kind of racial animus that existed in the pre-civil rights South was no less intense than the kind of intense racial animosity that divided these two groups of people. And in that kind of situation, Jesus said, can I have a drink? Now, if we don't understand the context of what's going on around and behind all of this, we won't understand the kindness of Jesus. He was not just offering a drink or asking for a drink. He was offering dignity. It was Jesus' way of saying, I don't mind drinking after you. I don't mind sharing this with you. That was shocking, unheard of, uncommon dignity extended from a Jewish man to a Samaritan person. And if that wasn't shocking and provocative enough, Jesus takes it up another level. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and all of his livestock? I just gotta acknowledge, I don't think I'm a good enough communicator to really capture what's happening here. Like think about all the racial divides, the, the religious discrimination. We're gonna see a little bit later. There's real gender discrimination that, that would have kept these two apart. They never would have talked. And so... I think she's like dripping with sarcasm in how she's talking to Jesus. Like, I imagine she's doing the neck thing. You know how you ladies can do, you know the neck thing? Like, I can't do the neck thing. I would imagine she's doing the neck. Who do you think you are? Where are you? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. We have an advantage. From our vantage point, we know that Jesus is being metaphorical. She doesn't know that. She's never met him before. She's never heard about him before. Never listened to him talk before. She is taking him literally. She thinks he's talking about literal water, but we know Jesus is talking about something else that he's talking about the resolution, the answer to the deep down questions of life, the deep down kind of questions of life that unite us and grip us all. Questions like this, what gives my life significance? What gives my life security? 
what gives my life satisfaction? What is the cure for shame and moral guilt? You find the answers to those questions. It will feel like a gushing well of joy and life for you. And so Jesus is trying to explain this to her, and she's not tracking, and yet she stays engaged with him. And this might sound like a dumb question, but I, I just want to ask, why? <laughs> like, why is she talking to him? Why is she kind of staying engaged with the conversation? I think this is at least part of it. Jesus was interesting because he was interested. Jesus was interesting to her because he was interested in her. Jesus just engaged her with kindness, with respect, with dignity, I'm sure in a way that was very uncommon for her. And the more we study, the more you discover about this woman, the more you will find out she is used to being talked about, not talked to. She's used to being judged. She's not used to being seen. She's the kind of woman, she's the kind of person everybody knows about her, but nobody takes the time to get to know her. So let me just ask you, what do your own experiences tell you? What do your experiences tell you? Isn't it true that we're all kind of naturally drawn to and captivated by people who are interested in us? The people who, who want to know about us, they don't want something from us, they just care about us. Aren't we all naturally drawn to people like that? Pastor Tim Keller has a perspective on this that I think is helpful. He says this, if you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think him or her humble, but only that they were happy and incredibly interested in you. If we are wrapped up like Jesus, if we're like him, an encounter with you, an encounter with me, will be experienced as us being happy and interested in the other person. And this is powerful. Because when we are listened to, when we are acknowledged, when we are welcomed, when we are respected, when we're honored, it's so powerful instinctively and naturally, without even thinking about it, instinctively and naturally, we equate it with being loved. And when those things are missing, without even thinking about it, we instinctively, we naturally equate it with not being loved. And that's the kind of moment that they're sharing here. It's deep, it's meaningful, it's personal. So Jesus says this to her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she, she replied. And Jesus said to her, you are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. This is where the conversation takes an awkward turn. <laughs> Up until this point, Jesus has been respectful, kind, winsome, engaging, honoring, and now he just exposes and talks about the thing that would have been the source of the greatest shame and likely the greatest pain in her life. Now, I'm not, I'm not condoning this. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just calling balls and strikes here. This is the way that it would have been in her, in her culture and her society. Having that many failed marriages, she would have been a social pariah. She would have been viewed as social trash, ignored, excluded, and shamed. Jesus says, let's talk about that. Was he being rude? Was Jesus being condescending? Was Jesus being judgmental? I mean, in this series, we're talking about what it's like to be like Jesus. So when people experience us, they get a glimpse of what Jesus is like. Should we be the kind of people that, you know, like when we encounter somebody, we just make sure we talk about all the things in their life that they should be ashamed of? I'll go first. <laughs> Taylor, you know, man... <laughs> There's some things in your life I just want to make sure you know are wrong. 
Does that sound right? One of our values is move towards the messes. The reason that this is a value in our church is because this is an implication of the gospel. And I want us to see how this is what's going on here. The people in my life, the people in my life who leave no room for doubt that they love me are people who are not afraid of the messes in my life, and I've got them. The people in my life who are the safest are the people who are not scared of the messes in my life. There's something powerful there. I bet you have experienced the same kind of thing. What's going on here? Is this what Jesus is doing? To understand it, we've got to remember the context. You guys passed the quiz earlier with flying colors. Let's see if you can pass this quiz. Do you remember? What time of day was it? Noon. It's the middle of the day. Do you think it's hot? Yeah, it's hot. Now, um, you, why, is she going to, why is she going to the well at the hottest part of the day? I'm curious. Has anyone ever been to a country, a place in the world, where women still go to the river to gather uh, water and jugs? Anybody ever been to a place like that? Okay, a few of us. I've been there. And uh, listen, there, there's some practical reasons that you don't go get water in the middle of the day. One, you need water all throughout the day. You need it earlier in the day for all the cooking and cleaning that's going to take place. Secondly, no one wants to carry a heavy jug of water at the hottest part of the day. No, thank you. Pastor Otis uh, told me a story about a church uh, that wanted to do something kind and generous for a village in Ghana. So this church voluntarily, just on their own, voluntarily paid to have a well installed in the middle of a village at this uh, um, in, in Ghana. And uh, so they were all excited about it. The well was installed, and a delegation from the church wanted to go see it. And so they showed up to this village. You know what they discovered? All the women are still taking their jugs down to the river to get water. And so they were a little annoyed. They were a little miffed and confused. And they asked, well, why aren't you using the well? You know what the ladies told them? Because this is our social time. This is when we hang out with our friends. This is when we laugh together, let our hair down. And so this church, in a very expensive way, learned some valuable lessons. Number one, don't assume you know what people want or need. Here's the second one. Never underestimate, never underestimate the value of social connection. Here's the third one. Do not underestimate the weight and the sting of shame. Why is this woman walking to the well by herself in the middle of the day? It's because she has no friends. She has no community. And the man who's with her won't even marry her. She has no family stability. And guys, it's tough for us dudes, it's tough for us maybe to relate to that. This is how we can relate to it. She has no one in her life who watches her back. But Jesus went out of his way to make his way to this woman, to let her know God is here, to bring you living water, and to bring you friendship. So when Jesus was moving towards the messes and Jesus is exposing this the deep hurt and shame in her life, he's like, listen, this living water covers that too. God is here. I've gone out of my way to make my way to you, to bring you the answers to what you need and to give you friendship. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim, what is she doing here? <laughs> She's changing the subject. It's getting a little too personal. Okay, well, let's go with what she's talking about. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. I'm going to ask you, what do you think the tone of voice was when Jesus said, woman, believe me? How do you think we should think about that? Hang on to it. We're going to come back to it. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. Now, he is not being rude. Samaritans, for reasons that we don't have time to get into uh, this morning, this is what they only accepted and read the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, you're missing a whole chunk of truth that you need. And so he's, he's saying, I want you to have that. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and those worshipers must worship in Spirit and in truth. Now back to the question. How do you think Jesus said, woman, believe me? Do you think he said it like this, woman, believe me? Like he's getting ready to do some mansplaining? For you ladies who don't know what mansplaining is, it's when a man, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. What's the tone? Do you think he said it like that or do you think he said it like this? Woman, ma'am, what do you think? In other places in the gospel, this is what we discover. This is the exact same way that Jesus talked to his mom. Let's let that settle in. Think about all the things, all the barriers, all the cultural customs and mindsets that would have separated them. Racial animosity, religious discrimination, gender discrimination, which we're going to see in just a couple of minutes. It's so unlikely that they would even talk to each other. And Jesus addressed this woman with the same gentle dignity that he did his own mom. And we got to see that. We got to see that because it's through that tone that Jesus addressed major differences and disagreement. What we see is that Jesus drew doctrinal lines, not battle lines. Jesus didn't hide from and ignore disagreements on what the truth was. But when he engaged it, he wasn't picking a fight. Truth is, by definition, exclusive. Truth excludes lies. Truth excludes things that are inaccurate. Truth excludes counter perspectives. That's what truth does. And if you disagree with me right now, guess what you're doing? You are excluding. In John chapter 1, we read that Jesus came full of truth and grace. And we see that in this interaction right here. Truth is sometimes hard, but should never be harsh. So what is the maybe hard truth to hear that Jesus delivered without being harsh? Number one, worshiping in spirit is important. Let me tell you what I'm convinced that means. That we worship from a place of sincerity and authenticity. It starts on the inside and comes out. It doesn't, it's not outside in, it's inside out. And that's the sincerity of your worship is far more important than ceremony or style. The sincerity of our worship is far more important than ceremony or style. But this is where the truth might start to get hard, especially for modern Western people. We don't get to determine what's true. And while sincerity and authenticity is important, it's not enough. Sincerity doesn't make something true. It needs to be sincere and true. Do you know what the dividing line is? Do you know what makes truth and delusion different from each other? 
You know the difference between truth and delusion? Excuse me, worship and delusion? The difference between worship and delusion is truth. And when Jesus raised this issue front and center, it's not because he's trying to exclude this woman. He's trying to include her in what's true. And he doesn't just want her to know truth in a general way. He wants her to know that truth is a person, that he is the truth who has come for her. The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. It's one of these beautiful moments where Jesus just revealed, I'm God in the flesh, here for you. I've gone out of my way to make my way to you, to offer you everything that you need and to let you know that God is bringing you friendship. And Jesus offered everything to someone who couldn't give him anything. And the same thing he did for her, he did for us. Jesus offers everything to you and me, even though we can't give him anything. In the same way that Jesus went out of his way to make his way to her, he did that for you and me. In the same way that Jesus knew all the murky depths of her shame, he knows all the murky depths of your and my shame as well. In the same way that Jesus offered her living water, he offers you living water. In the same way that Jesus offers everything, even though she could not return anything, he does the same for you and for me. And what could keep us? What could keep you? from trusting in that and putting the full weight of your life onto him and into his hands. Now, it was at this moment of the conversation that the disciples returned with lunch, and they were not prepared for what they were walking up onto. They were shocked. They were very concerned. This is what we read in John chapter 4, verse 27. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Let me see if I can help us get to the place to understand what they were feeling. What is it that would cause them to be concerned but too afraid to even talk to Jesus about it? Imagine if you were in a a building downtown. Like imagine you were going to lunch at Crave, right? Anybody ever go to lunch at Crave? I'm not a paid sponsor for Crave, but their steak sauce is awesome. Um, Imagine you're going to lunch at Crave with some friends and you turn in the corner and you look over and you see the check-in desk for Hotel Indigo and you see me standing next to a woman that you don't recognize and it looks like we're checking into a hotel room together. Me and a woman who is obviously not my wife. What do you think? What do you feel? That is the exact same thing the disciples were thinking and feeling in this moment. Jesus, what are you doing? Bruce Milne is a New Testament scholar. He writes this, a Jewish rabbinic teaching in Jesus' day stated, one should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with somebody else's wife because of the gossip of men, and it is forbidden to give a woman any greeting. The only reason that a man would talk to a woman in public was if he was trying to have sex with her. And Jesus kicked over all the social customs that would have kept him separated from the Samaritans. He ignored all the racism and all the things that stood in place that said, don't talk to this woman. Jesus just kicked that over too. And I'm not going to say the words out loud, but you know the words. You know the words that were used to describe how everybody perceived how this woman was available to men. And his disciples walked up and said, Jesus, what are you doing? And Jesus risked his reputation to bring the gospel and kindness and friendship to this woman. What are we to do with that? 
What should we make of that? What should we make of this kind of Jesus? And what does it mean for us to be like him in that regard? There's one thought that I have. We honor culture until culture dishonors people. We honor culture, but as soon as culture starts to dishonor people, we break with culture so that we can love people. We honor culture until culture dishonors people. If there is anything in our culture that keeps people from us and us from people, we knock it down. If there's anything in our church culture that keeps people from us or us from people, we knock it down. If there are any attitudes or mindsets or behavior that keeps us from people and people from us, we knock it down. If Jesus wasn't intentional that day, his disciples never would have even set foot in Samaria. If Jesus wasn't intentional that day, it would have been just another day of this woman being ignored. If Jesus was not intentional that day, it would have been another day of all the mindsets and cultural norms and and racism and everything conspiring to keep everyone in her life indifferent to her. Earlier, I asked you this question. What is the greatest threat to people experiencing you as loving? What is the thing that would cause people to experience us as though we are wrapped up in barbed wire? Eli Weissel was a Holocaust survivor. He went on to be a writer, a professor, even a Nobel laureate. He has a perspective that I think is helpful. He said, the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness, it's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy, it's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death, it's indifference. There is nothing about this woman and there was nothing in Jesus that would allow him to be indifferent to her. And there is nothing about you that would cause Jesus to be indifferent to you. He loves you. And he has gone out of his way to make his way to you so that you can know that. And so, if you go and read John chapter four, and I hope you do, and for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I really hope you pay attention to this part as you're reading in John chapter four. The disciples basically say, Jesus, we brought you lunch. And he says, I'm not hungry. And they're confused. And they said, did you already eat? And he says, listen, I've got food that you don't know about. I've got things that nourish me. I've got things that drive me. I've got things that fuel me that you don't even know about. I'm here for the harvest. And when Jesus talked about the harvest, it was his metaphorical way to say that I'm about bringing the gospel, the good news, to as many people as possible so that as many people as possible can be brought into it, can receive it and enjoy it. And in this moment, Jesus is having an interaction with the disciples to let them know, you're not getting it. You're with me, but you're not mission-focused yet. You're with me, but you're not about the harvest yet. You're too distracted by other things. You're still entangled and wrapped up in customs and culture and racism and things that would cause you to be indifferent to people. There's still something in you that caused you to be indifferent to her and even indifferent to her people. But I can't, be, I can't be mad at him. I don't think we should come down too hard on him. After all, we are vulnerable to being indifferent to those who are different from us. We're just all vulnerable to being indifferent to those who are different from us. Now, I do want to say this. After a day like yesterday, I don't think there's anybody in this town who feels like you're indifferent to them. I don't think that there's anybody who came and enjoyed yesterday who feels like the people of Autumn Ridge are indifferent to the community of Rochester. The way that you were wrapped up communicated that we went out of our way to make our way to love and be a gift to this community. So what happens next? It says this woman 
She went back to her town. As a matter of fact, if you read John chapter 4, she just left her gear. She left her, her jug. She just left it all behind, and she ran back to her town. It says this, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. She went back, and she was a preacher. She went back and she preached the gospel. She preached about Jesus to her town. I mean, she was talking to everybody, everybody who would listen. I imagine she's talking to people who don't even want to listen. And she's preaching a message on the resolution of shame. He told me everything that I ever did. I used to have shame. I don't have it anymore. It's gone because of this man. You've got to check him out. And this is a profound thing I don't even know how to talk about. But think about all the people in her town who kept her excluded. All the people in her world. She was the reason that she had to go it alone. And now she wants to make sure all the people who excluded her are included in the good news about Jesus. Jesus. And this is what we read. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. If you've been with us during this series for all of it or for part of it and you've been trying to take it seriously and you're like, listen, Rick, I'm with you. I wanna be a gift to the world for Jesus. I wanna be wrapped up like Jesus. I want an encounter with me to be like an experience with Jesus. Is there anything sweeter to hear than this? We no longer believe just because of what you said. It started with interacting with you. It started with you. We're so grateful for you, but now we know him for ourselves. Is there anything better to hear than that? 